Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome back to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we will discuss the catechized life. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dole Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you very much, Sean. It's great to be with you. Yeah, and we're very pleased to have you back on Concord Matters, and today we are actually going to welcome you back for a while here, as we're going to begin a new series here on Concord Matters, where we will be going through the catechisms, and we're very pleased that you have agreed to serve as our catechist for this series. So for the benefit of our listeners, I want to just kind of set up what we'll be doing here with the show and in this series a little bit here for us going forward. So for about the last nine months now, we've been doing a series of episodes where we have taken a sort of topical approach, if you will, to the Book of Concord and talking about why Concord matters for various topics in our Christian faith and life. And we'll probably do some more shows in that line from time to time going forward. But for most of the history of this show, which has been on KFUO for a little over seven years now, this show just read through the Book of Concord and provided an audio commentary as we went, and we had completed that in a little over six years. But even as we took a topical approach for a while, we never want to get entirely away from dealing directly with the text of the Book of Concord. And as we've certainly made the point on this show many times, there is definitely sufficient depth of material in our Lutheran Confessions to go through it several times over and still never quite cover it sufficiently, everything that is in there. I mean, it's just, it's so deep. So as we start to go back through the Book of Concord, I wanted to dig into the catechisms, which may actually be more well-known, at least by the average Lutheran layperson, apart from the Book of Concord, as they serve, at least the small catechism anyway, as one of the primary books that we use in our Lutheran catechesis instruction, or probably more commonly known as confirmation instruction. But of course, we know that both Luther's large and small catechisms are both included in the Book of Concord, and as Pastor Bestel made the point the last time that you were here on Concord Matters and talking about how to use the confessions devotionally, the catechisms are actually probably the best place to start for most people in getting into the Lutheran confessions. And so this time around, as we go through the Book of Concord, I thought a good way to cover the catechisms would be to do a series of catechetical lessons, and we're very pleased to have Pastor Bestel be our regular guest as he will serve as our catechist for this series as we work our way through the catechisms. And so, Pastor Bestel, as we kick off this series, it would seem to make sense that if we're going to go through the catechisms, we would just go ahead and start with the Ten Commandments and dig right in. But as you and I were working things out and setting up this series, you said something that actually kind of caught me a little off guard, and that was that you thought the catechism's starting point is no longer the starting point in the Western world. And so before we can even get into the catechism, we probably need to do some work first to help people even get into the catechism. Now, I think I probably agree with you and maybe do some of this myself when I do my catechesis instruction as a parish pastor, but I don't know if I've ever taken it quite to that point. You know, I think probably a lot of people, at least we as Lutherans, are prone to think that, you know, Martin Luther did such a great job in writing the catechisms, especially the small catechism, that you can just dig right in. I mean, I think most Lutherans even still today would just hand a catechism to someone and say, well, start learning our Lutheran confession of the faith with this great resource. I mean, we even say it contains all the basics that you need to know for the Christian faith. And so again, I think I probably agree with you, but I actually still just start myself right away with the Ten Commandments and then 
cover some things as we go along. So I'm actually interested myself and may even refine my own approach to catechesis through this series as we go through here with you. So go ahead, Pastor Bessel, and explain what you mean here that the catechism's starting point is no longer our starting point and that we need to get into the catechism before we can actually start with the catechism. Sure. First, let me agree with you that Luther's writing of the catechism is excellent. I mean, we we simply, uh, in a sense, cannot improve upon it. God has blessed us richly for about 500 years with Luther's catechism, and it simply uh, isn't something that I'd, I'd want to pretend that I can improve upon. And so I think the layout of the catechism is brilliant. And if we study the layout just a minute, then it will help underscore the point that I'm making in saying we need to approach the catechism with certain understandings. So if you think of the layout of the catechism, and I guess this is a good place to start with a series on the catechism. How does the catechism lay out? And how did Luther and all of his brilliance lay it out? Um, I'd almost ask your listener, if you're at home, if you're you know uh, at a desk somewhere, pull out a pen and paper. Uh, chart this out for yourself. I don't have a whiteboard, obviously, on on radio. So uh, try to visualize this, imagine it, or actually write it out on a piece of paper. When you think of the layout of the catechism, you think of the most people think of the six chief parts, and that's certainly true. But if we recall that the six chief parts really are regarding section one of the small catechism, and the small catechism also includes a section two. Uh, daily prayers, and a section three, the table of duties. Uh, I like to think about this as saying that section one leads to section two and three. Section one being the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And those three parts, Luther himself says, actually at the beginning of the large catechism's discussion on baptism, Luther introduces that discussion by saying that in the first three chief parts, uh, we have now discussed the entirety or the sum of Christian doctrine, the commandments, the creed, the Lord's prayer, and we'll get into what he means by that. I think uh, a short way of speaking of that is to say that the commandments show us our sin, the creed shows us our God who loves us, and the Lord's prayer, I'll make the argument as we go through the series, is really teaching us how to pray in a way that is sort of in line with, if you will, the third use of the law and, and what that means as we go through. But it's a it's certainly a reminder in the Lord's Prayer of God's blessings in daily life and his will for daily life. Uh, and so that first three chief parts, or those first three chief parts, really make up the totality, as Luther says, of the doctrine, or our folks might be more comfortable with the ter- with simply the term the word. And then the second three chief parts, baptism, confession, the Lord's Supper, really make up the sacraments or the divine gifts, the divine acts of God and the divine service. And so when you have word and sacraments together, there's the divine service. Or another way to say it, when you've got doctrine and the divine gifts of God together, if you, in a sense, multiply those things together, what is the outcome? The outcome is chief part two and chief part three. The outcome is daily prayers, in other words, faith in God, and the table of duties then is fervent love for one another. And hopefully our folks recognize those phrases because those are phrases in the post-communion prayer in which Luther says, we give thanks to you, almighty God, that you have refreshed us through the salutary gift And we implore you that of your mercy, you would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. Those are what we're praying for to get through the whole week. Faith in God, daily prayers, fervent love for one another, table of duties. How do we arrive at that? We arrive at that in word and sacraments. We arrive in that in the doctrine, the teaching, times, I'll use a a math term here, times God's gifts. And I use the word times there rather than adding, because when you time something by zero, for example, the net result is always zero. And if you've got a parishioner who says, well, I don't really need the divine gifts, I don't need the divine acts and the sacraments, because I'll just study the word of God at home, uh, all word and no sacraments is going to end up in zero. Uh, Or if somebody says, uh, I don't need to study the word, I don't need the doctrine, because I go to church, I go through all the motions, 
and and uh, and I just go through the motions for tradition's sake and get the divine gifts for tradition's sake. All of that is going to be uh, time zero equals zero, right? So uh, word times sacraments, if you will, or doctrine times divine gifts in the divine service is going to equal that fruit bearing that is either a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, as Jesus uses in the parable. And that fruit bearing is going to be faith in you, fervent love for one another. And I think that that simple layout in the catechism is so brilliant because it shows us what the Christian life is. But here's your here's your main point, uh, Sean, in, in addressing this. Why then do we need to approach this catechism in a sense? It's because when Luther writes the catechism, he starts with the assumption that everyone believes in God and that everybody believes in the importance of God's word, the importance of or the reality of sacraments. Sadly, we live in a day and age in which even the children we are teaching, the adult catechumens that we are teaching, the uh, parishioner, the longtime Lutheran in the pew that, that we are teaching and pointing back to the small catechism, they're being taught by society that there is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as God. And so the the layout of the catechism is one that almost, if you will, presupposes a student or a reader who believes in God and more fundamentally believes in truth. Sadly, we live in an age that no longer accepts that premise. It no longer accepts the notion of objective truth. Uh, Some would say we're in an age of relativism. I think we actually have to take it a philosophical step further and say we've actually reached an age of nihilism, where people believe there is no such thing as truth. Uh, and the, I suppose the comfort, the ironic comfort in that is that this is not unique to the 21st century. Uh, when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, he said, uh, Pilate asked him if he's a king. And Jesus says, well, you say that I'm a king, but for this reason, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And remember Pilate's retort. Pilate's response is, what is truth? See, we're no different in the year 2021 than Pilate's thinking was in the year, whatever that was, right around 30 AD. So 2,000 years ago, they were struggling with the same reality. So if the gospel can see the church through 2,000 years from that point on, then certainly the gospel can see the church through today and going forward. And it does it in the simple summary, if you will, that is the small catechism. And yet we have to start with the starting point of, well, what is truth? Uh, What is truth regarding God? Yeah, I like what you said there, that it's an ironic comfort that it's not unique to our age. (laughs) And I I feel a sense of that myself as well. I've been in my dual parish. We, uh, it's tough to do Bible class on Sunday mornings when you're traveling between two congregations. So we do it on Wednesday night and we've been meeting together as a dual parish and going through what I've called the story of salvation. So we're just kind of walking through the entire Bible and hitting the main stories as we go, encouraging them to read all of the sections as they go along, but uh, kind of doing a summary of it as we meet together for Bible class and getting that overarching narrative of salvation leading to Christ and then what Christ has done and fulfilled. And as we live in the Christian church in this age, in the New Testament, and I've done this before. And as we're going through the uh, Old Testament right now at this point, it's like the same problem over and over and over right. again. It just keeps repeating itself, right? And it's an ironic comfort when you start to get all discouraged by the things that you see around you in our age and everything. And it's like, well, it, it is an ironic comfort because we have faced this before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, Pilate himself makes that statement, you know, well, what is truth to Jesus as he stands there before him? And then I would say, even in connection with the catechism, I'm really glad that you started us there with not just how we approach kind of getting into the catechism, but seeing the layout of the catechism, because that was really important for what Luther was trying to do. Sometimes when we've done, or in the past on this show, when we did the catechism, we started with Luther's preface and kind of talked about his reasons for writing the catechism. We didn't really do that, but I think it's worth referencing here that it comes from visiting the churches Mm -hmm. and he sees a whole bunch of people who you're right. They did confess. They are Christians. They confess to be believing Christians, but he writes in his preface, 
but they had no idea what it was to be a Christian at all. That's right. And so he lays this out in these wonderful catechisms, the Christian faith, to give them this teaching so that they can confess and live as Christians. And I often like to make this point. I think I made this point you know, several years ago when we were going through at that point that in Luther's day and age, I think they were facing an illiteracy problem. They were unable to read and they were, you know, uneducated in a lot of ways. The church certainly wasn't helping them. I mean, there was education available and it was certainly a quality education that was available in the Middle Ages, but it wasn't necessarily available to everyone. And there were just unlearned people and the church wasn't helping them, certainly not doing things in their own language. Uh, certainly not the scriptures. And so this was revolutionary what Luther did and and helped teach them to read and write, even the common person, in part by doing these catechisms and scripture in German. I think in our day and age, the problems that we have are very similar, but we face an illiteracy problem, right? You know, people are capable of reading and it's taught. They just don't. And they're not instructed, certainly not in the government schools. But even once again, I think our common lay Christians sometimes just face the same lack of knowledge. And they have the same question. The world is constantly pressing in that that devil in the world and our own sinful flesh, right, are constantly pressing us in, trying to get us to doubt the word of God. And so it leads us to this conclusion of, well, what is truth, right? And so, uh, yeah, just a hearty, you know, amen to everything that you set up and laid out there for us and getting us into the catechism then, building on that. Well, how do we get this claim of truth then? How do we get the right to claim? If if we're going to need that to kind of get into the catechism, whatever form and shape it takes on, whatever age you're in, uh, uh, obviously we're talking about our age here today. Help us get into that then. Sure. First, I think we have to start with the very basic question. Is there such thing as truth? And it might be shocking to consider that we're at that point in, in social philosophy and understanding that people would try to actually make the claim that there is no such thing as truth. And the most basic examples can prove that there is objective reality out there, even if people are going to change the language, change the terminology to try to make it sound like it's just shifting sand under your foot and there's no such thing as uh, right from wrong, up from down. Um, even 25 years ago, when I was, when I was uh, well, almost 25 years ago, when I was going through uh, undergraduate classes in uh, California, already back then, they were teaching us that reality is simply a construct of language. Uh, but that's not true. That's not true. The sun always rises the same way every morning, no matter whether you're going to define the words differently. There's objective truth out there that the sun always rises in the east, always sets in the west. The season that we call spring always follows the season we call winter. Earth spins and rotates the same way all the time, always 24 hours in a day. Those types of truths, those types of objective facts remind us there is such thing as truth out there. There's actually no such thing as the phrase, my truth, which some of our our younger audience members, uh, younger people in the pews, some of our confirmands, they really struggle with this because they've, they've bought into or at least been pressured to think that people can actually refer to my truth as if truth is just whatever the individual wants it to be. That's actually what we call opinion uh, uh, and maybe what we call personal experience. But sometimes the things that I think and the things that I feel aren't actually true. I might feel that someone was trying to offend me with their words when actually it's an innocent mistake and they weren't trying to offend me at all. Uh, And so we really have to have the most basic conversation, sadly, in saying, no, there is such thing as truth. Uh, This world is objectively grounded in truth outside of a person's opinion, outside of a person's experience, no matter how much man wants to ignore that reality. But the question is then, okay, so if we, if we can get the individual to admit that there is such thing as truth, that yes, no matter how much we try to explain it away, truth is there. Then the question is, well, what about the existence of God? Is that a matter of truth or is it a matter of opinion? The individual likes to say in our day and age, well, 
in your truth there's a God, and in my truth there's not a God. But by definition, it has to be a matter of fact, either true or false, because by definition, God is, in a sense, greater than the individual man. God is to be, you know, the great deity is to be the cause of all things, uh, uh, and as the cause of all things, he cannot be subject to the imaginations of the things that he's caused. And therefore, by definition, there must be a true statement about the reality of God. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. Either he created the world or he didn't create the world. And so then the question, I suppose, uh, rather than just pointing fingers back and forth and, and saying, well, here, I've got my set of facts, you've got your set of facts. The, the question is, who has the corner market on truth regarding the God of life and death? Because that's ultimately what this world comes down to. This world ultimately comes down to saying, we are all here now, and we all know that we're going to die, uh, with the exception of some people that think that they can just sort of, uh, with enough science, they can make life last forever. Uh, but all of our past has shown us uh, that we are all here now, and we are all going to die. The generations rise and the generations fall. And so who has the corner market on truth? regarding the God over life and death, because if all of, all of our reality is life and death, then God has to be a God over both life and death. And so who has the corner market on truth regarding that God? And I think the answer is very clear. It's only the individual who has, if you will, seized and taken power over death. It's only the individual who, even if, for argument's sake, God had wanted him to stay in the grave that individual says, nope, uh, I have authority over the grave. I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. Only Jesus has the corner market on the truth regarding the God of life and death, for he's the only one who's ever raised himself from the grave, overcome death by his own power. And so he's the only one who can say, I know the truth regarding death, life, the whole world, and until there's anybody else out there who can, uh, how would you say it, buck that universal reality that once you die, you remain dead. Uh, you know, if that were if that were to happen with Muhammad or Confucius or any of the other supposed great thinkers of the world, then we'd all be told to say you must listen to this individual because this individual knows how to overcome death in the grave. Well, that has happened once in all of human history, and the person's name is Jesus. And notice how often Jesus even makes the claims throughout the scriptures that everything that he is about is about the truth, that he alone has the truth. Uh, we started, you know, mentioning uh, his testimony before Pilate, I came to bear witness to the truth. And I think it's important for Christian hearers to hear that rightly. He doesn't say, I came to bear witness to the spiritual truth. Sometimes when we read the Bible, Christians have bought into this notion in society that there's such thing as spiritual truth, and then there's such thing as secular truth, or there's such thing as spiritual truth, and then there's such thing as daily life truth. That's, that's not a distinction to be made at all. Jesus never makes that distinction. He simply says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And think of how often uh, in the Gospels, Jesus is appealing to himself being and having ownership over the truth. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, again, he doesn't say, I am one way, I am a spiritual truth, I am a form of life. He says, if there's one definition of the way, there's one definition of truth, there's one de definition of life, and I'm it. I am the way, the truth, the life. Uh, John 8, uh, when he's debating with some of the religious scholars of the day, some of the Jews who had believed in him, remember, he says, remain in my word and you will be my disciples and you will know the truth. Again, not spiritual religious truth, simply truth. Uh, same chapter, John 8, verse 44. In debating with those same Pharisee scribes, whatnot, he says, uh, he calls the devil a murderer who has nothing to do with the truth, and he calls him the father of lies. The devil's not just the father of spiritual lies. He's the father of all lies. Uh, John 16, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, and Jesus is the one who will send him because he is the one who has the corner market on truth, 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into all the truth, Jesus says. Uh, John 1, the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And later in that same chapter, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ constantly throughout the gospels. In fact, just as we're recording this, the gospel reading for the seventh Sunday of Easter that'll be coming up here in the three-year series is from John 17, where Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, he asks his father to keep his church, to keep his 11, to keep his disciples and, and, and the whole church throughout history, to sanctify them in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. Christ is always about the truth. That doesn't mean that we as Christians claim that the Bible alone is our math book or the Bible alone is our science book or our history book. But what it does mean is that Christ has a corner market on the entire history and truth of creation. And therefore, uh, when anything in daily life comes before us that would seek to undermine, uh, undercut, or question the authority of Christ or would question the claims of what is truth, we ought, as Christians, we ought run to Jesus because he, to this day, is the only one who has raised himself from the grave. Uh, one other thought I would say on that is this then, it becomes a very important fundamental principle for the Christian defense of the Holy Scriptures. I would urge all Christians to think carefully about how they argue that they believe the Bible to be true. We ought not believe the Bible to be true simply because, well, because we do, or because it's my holy book, or because my parents told me to, or because it somehow dropped from heaven. Many religions have what they call a holy book, uh, and, and it really does us no good to say, well, you believe your holy book, and I'll believe my holy book. Uh, yet it also does us no good to say, my holy book is better than your holy book, unless there's an undeniable line in the sand. And so where, where is the line drawn in the sand? Christians ought to believe the Bible because Jesus does and Jesus tells us to. Christians ought to believe the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, not simply because Christians are somehow anti-science and therefore I have to believe Genesis 1 and 2 because I don't want to listen to evolutionary theory, but rather we should believe Genesis 1 and 2 because Jesus does. Remember in, in Matthew 19, when they ask, uh, when the uh, teachers ask him about divorce, or some of the Jews ask him about divorce, and he says, do you not know that in the beginning, God made them male and female? He doesn't speak of that as if it's a story of the beginning, uh, as if it's a well-crafted mythology about how the world began. He speaks of it as a matter of fact, as a matter of history, as a matter of truth. That gives every Christian reason to hold to Genesis 1 as the truth and Genesis 2 as the truth. Because if it's not true, then Jesus is a liar or a deceiver by claiming that Genesis 1 and 2 is accurate. Okay, so this is a, a great reminder for us of how to defend the scriptures, how to follow the truthfulness of the scriptures, especially those prehistoric accounts that otherwise could be called surely a matter of faith. It's not a matter of blind faith, but rather as Christians, as those who follow Christ, we are always going to take his word in the matter. And if he says Genesis 1 and 2 are true, then we're going to believe them as history. We're always glad to see that scientific reports actually affirm the Bible and affirm biblical accounts. And, and most often, uh, you know, secular-minded scientists don't really want us to see that there's a lot of scientific argument out there that actually defends the Bible quite well. But even if that wouldn't be the case, nevertheless, Christ still says Genesis 1 and 2 are to be believed, Genesis 3 is to be believed, and therefore this is why we believe the Bibles. You know, uh, Christians should not think of themselves as, as uh, if you will, Biblians, right? We don't believe Jesus because we believe the Bible, but rather, in a sense, we believe the Bible because we believe Jesus. And there's some great books on there, uh, some great books on the, on the bookshelf for Christians to read about the historical reliability and defense of the resurrection of Jesus, because everything stands and falls with that. Remember what Paul says. He says that if Christ is not raised, I think this is 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, 
We are of all men to be most pitied. Why? Because we followed a lie. Not just because, oh, he's dead and therefore we're dead, but rather, no, we, we have not followed the truth if Jesus is not raised from the dead. But in fact, Paul says, in fact and in truth, Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, and because that's the truth, then Christ has all authority over life and death, and therefore he is the truth. And therefore, we as Christians can boldly follow what he says about the God over life and death, about the beginning of time, about the historicity of the creation and the fall and the weight of sin. And that leads us into the Ten Commandments. That leads us into a small catechism look at the need for a Savior because of the threat and danger of sin. Yeah, absolutely. And as you were going through there, especially the citations from Jesus's own words about how he is the truth and came to bear witness to the truth and so forth. It was the gospel of John after the gospel of John after the gospel of John. I remember one lay person once saying to me, you know, John's kind of hung up on this truth thing. And I remember laughing at that and saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. And as a matter of fact, all of scripture is, but certainly I think John is. I think that's a main point of his gospel. And I think it all culminates in John 20, where he says, these things are written so that you may believe. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to continue to set that up. And I also was going there to uh, what you were laying out there for us without using the term. But I think we can go ahead and use the term as well as what we commonly call apologetics in the church, how we give a defense of our faith the defense of what we believe according to scripture and and all of that's very important for getting into the catechism of course ties in with once again peter one of jesus's own disciples as well like john also hung up on this true thing that you know our common passage for apologetics is first peter 3:15 right that we would always be prepared to make a defense apologia there in the greek to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that's that's what we're seeking to do and lay out here. We're going to pick up more of this, especially as we transition then into this truth claim and how it is foundational for what we believe in approaching scripture and the catechism as we dig into these catechesis lessons. Uh, we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUR. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finneran of Thy Strong Word, and I'm excited to announce a new series in the Old Testament with First and Second Kings. Join us as we will see how the Lord worked through the kings of Israel and Judah. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus. Every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, as we begin this series going through the catechisms from the Book of Concord, and Pastor Bestel is serving as our catechist for this. I set up in the first half of the show that, Pastor Bestel, you said we kind of need to get into the small catechism, especially given the culture around us, and you really laid out really well for us why that's important. And of course, we know, especially folks listening to this show, we know that our small catechism begins with the Ten Commandments. And as I said in the first half, I I think I agree with you that we do need a little help to get into why do we start with the Ten Commandments there? And I would say pretty foundational for that is that we need to get into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for how we then approach the Ten Commandments. But we even need a little help, especially, again, recognizing the culture that we live in and all of the pressure that comes upon us. Well, how do we even believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3? And you've been setting that up really well for us with this matter of truth, which has been contested in all ages, but is certainly, as we recognize, very much contested in our own culture and pressure. You talked about you experienced it in college in your own education, I certainly have as well. I'm sure our listeners have as well. And so how do we contend for truth then, especially getting back here then? So Jesus 
himself, as you set up in the first half, says that Genesis 1 and 2 can be believed. And you were laying out some apologetics for us of why that's important. What does that tell us then about truth of creation and how God created the world and how we approach and get into scripture then? Because that's obviously where scripture begins before we even get to the Ten Commandments and the small catechism. Yeah, this is an important question because uh, when people look at the world around them, they see chaos, they see carnage, uh, they see things that are just in mass confusion and sort of disorientation. And they wonder, how in the world could this be the product of a loving God? And I think when they then open a small catechism and the first thing they see are Ten Commandments, they think one of two two ways. They either think, you know, uh, God didn't create us, we're, we've evolved. And so what are these arbitrary commandments from a God who didn't create us? Or they think... God created us and created this world that he caused, if you will, or he created in this imperfection and now is giving us these unfair Ten Commandments. And it's all because they have this incorrect view of the creation. They have an incorrect view of what happened that got us to this point of complete carnage uh, and chaos and confusion, leading to things like despair, depression, even suicide. Uh, it's so sad to see what's going on in the world out there, and I don't think that it's coincidental that the great philosophy, if you will, of uh, evolutionary theory, you know, the philosophy of the Enlightenment that says that basically man is the height of reason and man is the height of truth, and that has sort of devolved into everything that man experiences is the height of truth, or that everything that man thinks in his own mind is the height of truth. No wonder we're going to end up in confusion and chaos and, and, and carnage. We have to be able to look at Genesis 1 and 2 to see where we actually came from. Where did this world actually come from? Rather than thinking that it's all just sort of popped out of nowhere and the only truth is today, uh, know that the truth actually comes from a God of good order. What is the truth of the beginning? Because the truth of the beginning is going to help give us a sense of the truth of today and the truth of why we really benefit from the small catechism, from the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. So to start in Genesis 1, I think when people read Genesis 1, Christians are very tempted because they don't want to be seen as people who disbelieve science. Uh, and Christians don't disbelieve science. Science is a very useful tool. It's God's. It's one of God's great gifts to mankind. Science does wonderful things for us when it is actually science and when it's actually based on observable truth. The problem with trying to use science to go way back to the beginning of creation is that there's nothing that we can do today that puts in a laboratory some sort of an experimental way of reenacting what happened at the beginning. Who better to trust for the beginning of time than the one who is actually there, than God himself? Uh, and therefore, Christians should, with very good confidence, just hold to Genesis 1. We can't go back, and, and I'll let the apologists spend all of their time on, on why this is the case, but we can't assume that everything that is today scientifically observable was exactly the same way at the beginning of time. What we can assume is right, is that if Jesus says Genesis 1 and 2 are an accurate recording of the beginning, then we can look at Genesis 1 and 2 and have an accurate understanding of what happened. So Genesis 1, there are two important phrases in this chapter, uh, even as we teach our children the six days of creation and on the seventh day that God rested. There are two important phrases that I think the catechist should always point out to the confirmand or to the adult catechumen in showing that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, but Genesis 1 and 2 as a matter of the creation, are a very assertive statement of truth that do not need to be redefined and can't even be redefined to fit into the evolutionary narrative. The first of those phrases is the phrase, everything according to its kind. Uh, when you read through Genesis 1, and uh, if your readers at home have their Bible open, you can skim through and you can see various passages here in the days in which it says that everything was created according to its kind. And this is said specifically regarding the creation of various types of animals. So the first we see it 
is with the uh, sea creatures and then with the birds and with the creeping things and with the land animals, everything according to its kind. Uh, so, for example, how about verse, uh, let's see, uh, oh, and I should have included in there also the, the plants and vegetation. So verse 11 God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good, evening, morning, the third day. And you can read the same type of thing regarding the sea creatures, regarding the birds, regarding the land animals, the creeping things. Everything is always according to its kind. This is something that to this day, evolutionary theory simply cannot refute. But no matter how many changes you have within one particular species, there is no such thing. We've never found such thing as, for example, an orange tree all of a sudden bearing an apple or, uh, you know, somebody who uh, perhaps for a living is a, a, a dog owner and dog breeder that all of a sudden in breeding two dogs, all of a sudden he has a kitten. Uh, those things just don't happen because God's good order in creation continues to abound. So if everything is created according to its kind, plants, animals, uh, all the vegetation, everything was uh, according to its kind and that's something that goes directly against the evolutionary theory of chaos. Pastor Bestel, hang on just a second. Yeah. I think there's another helpful point to make here, too, especially for our day and age. And again, we're not going to kind of launch off into an apologetic show. That would kind of be a different show. We want to stick to the catechesis nature of this. But I think as we look at our culture and the pressures around us, I think we're seeing in our own day and age kind of the manifestation of evolutionary thinking being around for a while, that we see people begin to question, you know, whether a man is a man and a woman is a woman, right? Excellent point. And yeah. I think that this ties into that everything according to its own kind as well. And, and this is one of the places where called to confess truth and what we believe according to scripture, Christians need to be clear on this. And I realize it's become a political issue. Uh, and is tied up with a whole lot of things that's just going to happen in this world. But it is a matter for our clear Christian confession that we go back to the basics again and say things were created according to their kind. That's how we were created. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. That that word kind there, it leaves open the reality that within a particular species, right, uh, you're, you're going to have some fluctuation of particular characteristics, right? Man is taller than he was, you know, 200 years ago. In fact, there's an interesting uh, uh, series of studies out there about how the average male's handshake is softer today than it was 100 years ago. You know, things like that are going to happen, but man is still man. And man is always going to be man because he was created according to his kind. Man and woman are different and complementary to each other. God made them one for the other. If there was no absolute difference between the two, if man just needed man, then God would not have given him woman. You know, instead of being Adam and Eve, it would have been Adam and Steve. But it's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve because there's a very particular good order to which God created this world. Uh, and you're right. Sadly, it's become a political issue. But I like the way that you say that because our politics does not define the overarching philosophy that is attacking the church today. And I think we're making a mistake as the Christian church if we think that, oh, well, this is a political issue and the church shouldn't have anything to say about it because it's just politics. It's not politics. Politics did not create this, but rather it is being swallowed up by it. This is part of philosophy. This is part of the next phase in the age of enlightenment, if you will, is just going right back into the dark nature of human reason. And so we do have to be very careful about realizing that though this might be uh, a conversation that finds its way into politics, it's not the creation of politics. The sinister idea that man and woman are interchangeable, this is a philosophical claim. Uh, and yes, our politics have been swallowed up by it, but the church is the one that is most well-suited to defend against false philosophy 
because it's really doing nothing other than refuting and defending against false theology. Yeah, I really think that's important, especially the point you made about it being a philosophy, because at least in its strictest definition, a philosophy is a system of thought, which our theology does form our Christian philosophy, if you will, or Christian worldview, or whatever you want to call it there. The way that we think about and engage the world is formed by the system of thought that we have. And so I like what you said there, that a lot of these matters are not just a competing philosophy with our Christian faith, but they are actually a false philosophy. They are just simply not true. And so we're going to refute them with the truth. And of course, we don't have to be mean about it, and we shouldn't be mean about it. We speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4 says. And I think most Christians aren't mean about it. Generally, it's the world that gets enraged against the truth that tend to actually get pretty mean about it. And it's always been that way, uh, was with God's prophets and apostles and those who have always spoke the truth. But ultimately, we do have this responsibility to contend for the truth. And so I just thought it was important to bring that in here because... I think that's ultimately what is at stake here is that these things are not just matters of politics or limited to just the civil realm. And I think sometimes the tension we feel is that we sometimes get told by the culture, well, if someone thinks that they are a woman or if they want to live in a homosexual relationship, well, that doesn't really affect you. So it, what does it matter? Just mind your own business and you don't have to say anything about it. I know that growing up, I experienced that, and the people that I catechize, certainly our young people, are heavily pressured by the culture we live in to buy those kinds of lies. I think ultimately what it leads us to is to deny what we Christians confess is true. And so that's why when I cover these things in my catechesis, especially with our young people, I always just point it out to them directly. I I say, now what I teach you is in direct contradiction to a lot of the things our culture believes, and you're going to feel some pressure about that. Because you're told by the culture that what I'm going to talk about doesn't affect me, that it's a matter of politics, and that I should just stick to the Bible. But that's just wrong. The culture has their thinking, and they certainly aren't shy about teaching you their thinking all over the place. And we as Christians think differently. And so I won't be shy about teaching you either. And so, yeah, I just point it out to people like that, because I do think that it is a matter of our Christian confession. It does go back to what we believe is a matter of truth according to God's own word. And so we have to confess that. And so we're not going to be quiet about those sorts of things. That is why we in the church are going to point it out directly and teach about it. That is why we as Christians are not silent on these things and are vocal about them in the civil realm. And even there, we're not silent about a lot of these things just as citizens because they do actually have an impact in our civil life together and affect how we live in community. But again, that's probably a matter for another show to cover, but it is also a part of our confession of truth of how God created us and what he created us for. And so it does matter for our Christian confession and for our catechesis. So yeah, I just wanted to jump in there and make sure that we make that point there, because I think that is a point where we might say is where the rubber sort of meets the road in our catechesis. But sorry if I derailed you there a bit, uh, Pastor Bestel, and uh, took us down a tangent, but I, I thought that was important. But I'll just go ahead and throw it back to you then to pick up with that second important phrase uh, that you were going to talk about there before I interrupted you there. Sorry. Yeah, and, and it, it's not a derailing at all because it's important to understand this. So the second phrase, it was good, helps us define that first phrase. You know, if people want to say, oh, well, maybe that's the way that God made it back then, but it no longer suits the 21st century. No, it was good. Right. Everything was, in fact, the, the word in the Hebrew there is tov. And, and this is another thing that I think Christians need to stand firm about is that is the word good is never defined by human experience. It's defined by God. Uh, what is good for God is righteous, pure, holy, perfect. It's not simply good like, well, you know, God looked at his creation and he sort of gave it like a, you know, what, what, what would you say if, if a parent asked a child, how'd you do on your math test? And he said, good. Well, that could be defined different ways, right? Maybe for one kid, that's a A minus. Maybe for another kid, it's anything over a D. And so we have to hold fast on this word good, having much more concrete perfection to it than simply saying, yeah, God was pretty pleased with it. But rather, no, this was, everything was perfect. Okay, it was good. And that phrase goes through, that little word tov goes through all of Genesis 1, where everything that he makes, he looks at it and it's good. And everything was perfect. Everything was beyond any sort of imperfection. 
again, going back to the creation of male and female, remember that's the one point in Genesis 1 and 2 where God looks at it and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not tov. It's not perfect, pure, holy, righteous. It's not the way I want the good order of my creation, but not I will make another man to be just like him. I will make a Steve to go with the Adam. No, I'm going to make an Eve. Uh, He he names her Eve, of course, at the end of chapter three, Adam does, Uh, but I will make a woman to go with the man. So everything is good. Everything is perfect. In fact, at the end of chapter one, after going through all of these, it says, and it was very good. And that word there in the Hebrew, it's actually the phrase meod tov. But I actually like to point out that that word, that adjective meod sort of is a descriptor that means exceeding. It means to multiply, if you will, the goodness, this abundance of it. So it's sort of like a tove tove. It's sort of like two toves in a row. Uh, our church sits next to a Little Caesars pizza. And if you remember the ads for Little Caesars pizza, there was the little guy with the toga who would uh, hit his stick and the two pizzas would flip around. He would say pizza, pizza, right? This is the pizza of all pizzas. In the same way, this exceedingly adjective, sort of like adding a tove on top of a tove, means this was the height, this was the perfection of all perfection. Everything was good. So now take a look at these two thoughts there and notice what it means regarding our defense against the evolutionary theory and why it's so vital. Well, I, had, I remember uh, years ago, I was talking with a group of pastors and they, you know, we were sort of discussing the importance of saying, no, even the issue of evolutionary theory has to be one that we stand against wholeheartedly because of some of the consequences of that teaching. For example, if evolutionary theory is true, then death is natural. Death isn't a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. It's a natural thing. And if that's true, then Christ came for no reason whatsoever. Christ saves us from nothing if death is just a simple part of the supposed good of evolutionary creation. That's a huge point that every Christian can sort of slip in his hip pocket there, if you will, and always carry with them that if someone wants to argue about the difference between creation and evolution and how they're supposedly interchangeable, uh, according to evolutionary theory, death is nothing to be saved from. Death is part of the natural process that supposedly brings an improving righteousness, an improving uh, world. The scriptures say just the opposite. Death is not a good thing. Death is an evil. Death is a bad thing. Christ came to save us from it. And therefore, you've got two diametrically opposed concepts regarding the creation of the world. Another thing I'd say to folks regarding this issue of Genesis 1 and whether it can be believed regarding the creation when when you hear a lot of things out there about science and about carbon dating and the date of rocks and all those different things, boy, a lot of Christians get caught up in worrying about the dating methods and whether or not those mean that Christianity is wrong to believe in a young earth. I'd point out the simple fact that when God created Adam and the woman, he did not create them as infants or toddlers, or children. He created them in maturity. And when God created the plants, and the animals, and the creeping things, and the birds in the air, he did not create them in the infant stages, whether that be eggs, or larvae, or whatever. He created them in maturity, which, by the way, sort of answers the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the scriptures say the chicken came first, right? And then the, and then the first chicken had, had the first egg. So there you go. But anyway, uh, getting back to the, the point, And so right away it says, trees bearing fruit according to their kind, birds according to their kind, not the potential for it. Everything was created in maturity. So now take that to the mountains, because that's always the the claim of evolutionary theory is, oh, well, yeah, but all the dating systems show that the mountains, that that the rock, that the rock of the earth is millions and billions of years old. Well, none of us were there to observe it. So I really don't care how much the dating says it looks like it's millions of years old. God could create something 7,000, 8,000, whatever years ago and still have it give the appearance of being millions of years old. So Christians should not be thrown off guard by this idea that we are in a world that has grown up from chaos into less chaos. And yet 
I think this is uh, this is problematic for people that Christians tend to look at the world out there like everybody else. They feel the pressure from everyone else of sort of a dog-eat-dog world, survival of the fittest world, right? All of these phrases that sort of sound like uh, we began from and continue on in just sort of this evolutionary fight for survival. And they look at the world out there and they say, well, yeah, it, it does seem that God is absent. It does seem that God is distant. And then they look at the Ten Commandments they say, what, what good are these Ten Commandments or what good is this creed or what good is this Lord's Prayer if Genesis 1 and 2 are undercut from me? So we, we as catechists, as pastors, we need to teach Genesis 1 and 2 with the fortitude and boldness of the certain conviction that Christ said this is true. And if this is the truth, that God made everything according to its kind and that God made everything exceedingly good then it's understandable that people are going to get the question of, well, what happened in all of this? If it was good before, then what happened? See, again, evolutionary theory, it says, well, we're on the way to being good. Just follow us, everyone, get in line, and we're almost there, right? And, and thinks that, oh, isn't this great that we now don't talk about mothers and fathers, but birthing parents, or as, as uh, one satire website said today, that now that we're done with birthing parents day, we can go on to lawn mowing parents day because you can't use mother and father anymore, and that this is supposedly a verbiage of progress, right? That our world is supposedly getting better. Everyone knows that's not the truth. You look out there and, and you see that the world seems to be falling apart. And yet the Christian might struggle with, if God made everything according to its kind, and if God made everything so that he himself was very pleased with it, that it was perfect, holy, righteous, pure, then what happened? What happened to this world that we are in the plight that we're in today? And that question of what happened also needs to be addressed before we can actually get to the Ten Commandments and see their usefulness. Yeah, I think that's really important. I, I like the point you made in there, too. Everything was good, and God defines the good. That's going to be really important, as you just set up for us, for getting into the Ten Commandments, because otherwise, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get into the Ten Commandments, otherwise you take a look at the Ten Commandments. That's our starting point in the small catechism. And if you have kind of the, the human reasoning approach to it, yeah, I think that's where a lot of people get pretty angry with God and they view the Ten Commandments as a burden. And at least when I teach the Ten Commandments, I, I teach them as God's love for us as he is the creator. And so I think this is really important what you're doing here for us and setting us up to even rightly approach getting into the Ten Commandments. Uh, with just about a minute here, we're going to wrap up today's show there. But uh, why don't you give us a little preview of where we're going to go next week then as we continue to get into the catechisms here and going through the Book of Concord? Sure. I like to use inductive teaching, if you will. Sort of, There's a deductive, inductive method of teaching the catechism, I think. I like to use an inductive method and say, okay, what do we see around us? What do we see in the scriptures that lead us to the catechism rather than the catechism says this, therefore, you know, we, we believe that. And I think if you look inductively into how do we get to the Ten Commandments, I would say this. Genesis 3 paints for us a situation in which because of the fall, Everything that you look at in the world out there today, every problem can fit into one of five categories. And Isaiah sort of hints at what the main problem is when he says in chapter 59 of his prophecy, your sin has separated you from your God. And so I'd like to use sort of an inductive method of talking through the fall. Uh, I actually give the credit to my, I learned this from my father, who was my pastor growing up, and I don't know where he got it from, but he refers it to, uh, he refers to it as the separation syndrome. And I'd like to teach folks that separation syndrome because it helps us make sense of the world out there. It helps us look at the world out there and say, man, I can put every single one of the problems in the world out there into one of these five categories, and I can see that the fundamental problem is all the same. The problem is sin. And therefore, I need a savior from that sin if I think I'm ever going to have any chance to deal with any of the consequences of sin. Well, we certainly look forward to that. And we look forward to having you back, Pastor Mark Vestal, 
serving as our catechist here on Concord Matters as we go through this series of looking at the catechized life, digging into the catechisms from the Book of Concord and how we confess and live that faith and faith towards God and in fervent love toward our neighbor as you've laid out there for us is the plan of the catechism formed and shaped by that word and sacraments. Thank you so much. Glad to have you back with us today. My pleasure, Sean. All right. We'll see you next week. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.